I invite you to stand with me now as we consider the last section here in 2 Thessalonians. We'll be concluding our series in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. This morning, I'm going to read verses, uh, this is in chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 6 down through the end of the chapter. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we could give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what he says, what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time to gather together as the corporate body of Christ here in this place to worship you. Part of that worship, Father, is bringing tithes and offerings, regular giving into the life of our church so that our church can effectively minister here in this community and around the world. In addition to that, are offerings like our Lottie Moon Christmas offering where we sacrificially give together every year so that brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom we will never meet on this side of heaven, can fulfill their call by God. you places where the gospel has never been proclaimed and the name of Jesus is not known. Would you be with them today, we pray. Would you take Christmas away from the traditions of family that many of us are able to enjoy? Thank you, God, that we can be a part of their ministries by giving so that they may go. Father, as we turn one final time to this series in Paul's letters to the church here in Thessalonica, would you help us focus our minds and our hearts on your word? Show us areas of our life, God, where we still need the sanctifying power of your spirit to rid us of our sin and to cloak us in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This final sermon in this series takes up a, a rather common, secular, even some would consider mundane subject, but one that the Apostle Paul addressed both in his first letter, 
to the Thessalonians and in his now second letter to them. And that is the subject of orderly labor. How we go about our lives in that which we do. It's not uncommon when adults gather in places and they meet new adults that you end up hearing this question. Probably one of the first two or three questions we ask a stranger that we met for the first time. So what do you do? And everyone knows what that means, right? It means where do you go from nine to five? What, what have you dedicated your life to doing? What job do you do to support your family? Such a common question for us. It really has become even mundane in our lives that we just go to work. It's what we do. And Paul is going to address this subject because for many in that church, and not just within the church, many within that city and within that culture, if they were asked, what do you do? They would answer the question, well, I don't really do anything. Scholars have written about why Paul addresses this subject specifically. These are not the only two letters where Paul addresses the subject of work, but he addresses it probably most forcefully and most clearly here in these two letters. Why here? Why to, these, why to this church? Some have said that it was because of their eschatological, their end times doctrines that they had become confused over. Some even thinking that Jesus had already returned and they had missed it. And some had, some would argue that these men and women maybe have quit their jobs expecting Jesus to return at any moment or having already returned that they didn't need to work anymore. I think the argument for that is actually a weaker argument. Most likely what Paul is addressing here is a cultural issue known as patronship or patronage, where a wealthy individual would amass for themselves clients. Now, not clients as we would think of clients, where you own a business or you uh, operate a business in some way, and some people come to you and, and become clients within your business. But these were clients within society that people would actually make their living simply by being dedicated to someone else. And the clients of these patrons would depend upon them for their well-being, their social status, their living even. And the patron would then receive honor within the culture for having so many clients. We really, really, we should just call these people what they are, dependents. It's like having a whole bunch of children that aren't your children, even in their adulthood. And it was somewhat, at least, socially acceptable. It was more socially acceptable to be a patron than it was to be a client. There was, there was some social credibility that one could gather for themselves by being someone who supported so many people. It, it was an outward expression of your generosity, if you will. And you were kind of socially required once you started supporting someone, as long as they kept up your good name publicly, which was ultimately why people did it, that you couldn't cut them off. You, you had to continue that support of them. And, and this had become an issue there in the culture. And it seems as if this has become an issue in the church. Now, we don't really have this 
issue today, people being patrons and clients of another. And now, while there may be some adult children who live off of the goodwill and generosity of their parents, and there are others in our culture who live off of the generosity of uh, the collective of, of the government, that's not really what Paul has in mind here. But there is still an instruction to the church that we should be people who order our lives in such a way that we are seen as being hard, diligent workers who support themselves, who are not reliant on others. This is Paul's main concern in this closing section of this letter, is that the church had become somewhat disorderly in the way they viewed labor. As I told you, There was some benefit to being a patron and there was some social benefit to being a patron because it showed your generosity. But someone who was a client, someone who was one of these dependents that lived off of the goodwill and generosity of their patron were not viewed in high regard. As you could probably imagine. How would you feel if if you went to work all day and someone else didn't? And so... Paul wants to clarify what he had already written to them in the previous letter. These things, that to be a part of the church means to be a hard worker, someone who conducts themselves in an orderly manner. And so he first addresses two disorderly characteristics that had found their way into the church. The first is the disorderly characteristic of idleness. He begins with a command and invokes the name of Jesus. If you are here this morning and think, well, this can't be that big of a deal, please understand what the apostle is doing here. When he uses the word command, it is a forceful word. And when he invokes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that he does here in verse 6, Paul is saying, rise up now, sit up straight and listen to me, because he had already written to them once and they obviously didn't listen to him the first time. So he invokes a command in the name of Jesus. And he says this, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with traditions that you received from us. Now, quickly, we need to ask, what are the traditions he received from them? He tells them in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone else's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we not, may not be a burden to any of you. So the traditions that Paul is speaking of is how he demonstrated orderly labor, hard work, toil in front of the church, and then how he also wrote to them about this subject in his first letter. And so the command that Paul gives now is is almost a command of warning to those who are still taking part in this patron-client system. And here's the warning. He says that if you're going to continue to not earn your own keep, then I'm going to tell the other brothers and sisters in the church, and that's what the word brothers there means at the beginning of verse 6, brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell the congregation to not have anything to do with you. It's become that serious of an issue, that if you're not going to follow in the pattern that we established and the teachings that we gave you when we were there in person, if you're not going to do what we wrote to you in the first letter, then ultimately I'm going to speak to the people around you. It's almost like Paul is appealing to peer pressure here. I'm going to speak to the people around you and say, don't have anything to do with these people. 
So this is a serious matter. The way that we conduct ourselves in the secular world and our primary engagement within the secular world is our labor, is our work in the world. So the way that we conduct ourselves in the secular world matters. And so Paul gives them the command. He invokes Jesus. He, he applies peer pressure. He says, you need to order your lives in such a way where you are not idle, but are at work. So let's consider how Paul's already written about this in the first letter. He tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that they should aspire to live quietly and to mind their own affairs, which is going to matter in the next section, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul tells them that they need to be hard workers, people who, who work with their hands, People who, who, it doesn't literally mean that everybody is supposed to do manual labor and that all other kind of labors are shunned. What he's saying is that this should be, you, you should be committed to hard work. You should be committed to hard work as we had instructed you. So even in the first letter, he appeals to his previous teachings in person. And then he gives two reasons for it. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and that you may be dependent on no one. So he's speaking in this first letter about that, about that patron-client relationship. But I think what's most important here in Paul's view is so that they may walk properly before outsiders. Walking properly was the instruction of the first letter concerning secular engagement. Paul wants the church to have a good reputation in the community as far as it depends on their secular engagement. And you say, wait, why does, that, why does it matter? Why does it matter that the church has a good reputation in the community? And here's why. It matters because our message is going to be offensive to people. Gospel proclamation is going to be offensive to people. We need to recognize that, that there are going to be times that we speak the truth of God into people's lives in love, caring for them, not, not from a standpoint of being judgmental or being condemning, but as loving people, we proclaim the gospel and the Bible tells us the gospel is gonna be offensive to people that people aren't going aren't gonna to always like what we have to say. But our lives, particularly our social engagement, our work, shouldn't be offensive to them. Listen, if you want to have a gospel influence at your work, I think I said this when I preached in 1 Thessalonians. Let me say it again in 2 Thessalonians. If you really want to have a gospel witness, gospel influence at your work, be the hardest worker there. That's the best thing you can do for your gospel witness. Be the hardest, most honest worker in the room. Be the man or woman that shows up early. Be the person who stays late. Be the one that does stuff that they're not asked to do. Be the person that cleans up after themselves and after others. Be someone that is seen as a legitimately hard worker. You say, why? Because that's going to gain you social credibility with people. Say, is that really what we're about? Absolutely. Why? Because that gives us an opportunity for the gospel. Listen, if you're a lazy worker, there's no wonder nobody wants to listen to you about the gospel. If you're a hard worker, they're going to know why. 
They're going to know why you are the way that you are. And so Paul is urging them in this so that you may walk properly before outsiders. In the next chapter of 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 5, he comes back to this subject and he says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. So if you feel like Paul applying peer pressure in this chapter of the second letter is maybe a little bit out of bounds, he's already once written about helping one another to not be idle. And it seems as if whoever delivered the message back after the first delivery of, of the letter, or that first letter, whoever delivered that first letter brought a message back and like, they're, they're not listening to you on this. And so then he goes harder in. So they were told to fix it. And now they're told from the outset to keep away from those who are unwilling to heed this warning because by not heeding this warning to be hard workers, these people are dragging down the reputation of the church and the reputation of the church in the community matters. Now, listen, if our community hates us for the message of the gospel, then they hate us for the message of the gospel. But let us not be hated for any other reason, especially that we would be lazy in our secular engagements. So he's already told them to work. He's encouraged them in this. And he says, I've set this example for you. And this was important to the ministry of Paul. At the end of his third missionary journey, Paul's on the way to uh, Jerusalem. He knows they're gonna put him in prison. And he, he calls the Ephesian elders to meet him in a port city outside of Ephesus because he had spent a lot of time in Ephesus and he had grown to love these uh, men that, that were the elders of that church. And he calls them out to them and he, he talks to them about ministry and he talks to them about going to, uh, to prison. And this is one of the things he says. He talks to them about his own labor amongst them in Acts 20. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've showed you that by working hard in the way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So first Paul sets the example and he reminded the Thessalonians of this, that he didn't eat anybody else's bread. He didn't take without paying for it, but he toiled and labored both night and day. Meaning Paul was a tent maker by trade. If you don't know the life of Paul, this is what he did. He, he did manual labor during the day and proclaimed the gospel at night, likely also proclaiming the gospel in the workplace uh, as, he was, as he was making tents there with his mission team. So Paul worked night and day and he even reminds these, these Ephesian elders of that in Acts 20, how he worked hard in front of them, demonstrating. But notice the appeal that he makes at the end there of that section in Acts 20. He makes the appeal to, to why we work. Obviously, we work for good standing, but we receive payment for our work. And by receiving payment for our work, what are we able to do? We're able to help the weak. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is, this is the ultimate um, reason that Christians would seek secular employment and to actually be paid for our work. We're paid for our work. It pays for our food. It pays for our house. It pays for our clothes. It pays for the things we need. And then what are we able to do? We're able to support other people, not in a patron-client relationship, but in a giving to the poor and spreading the good news of Jesus type gifts that we are able to give and to do so generously because God blesses, the, God blesses our labor and provides payment 
because of that hard work. So yes, Christian, go and work hard. Follow the example of the apostle Paul. Be someone who labors night and day. Don't be controlled or owned by your work because your work is a means to an end. It's not the end itself, but we wanna work hard at it so that we can have good standing in our community and so that we can take that which God blesses us through our work and be a blessing in our world. But then notice what he says. He's gonna give a caveat in verses nine and 10 about his, about his right as an apostle and a minister of the gospel. He says in verse nine, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even though we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Let me deal first with verse nine and the right that Paul is claiming. We have to ask the question, what is this right that Paul is talking about that he said he had the right to do, but didn't do? Ultimately, what the right that Paul is saying is Paul had the right as an apostle of Jesus to be a full-time missionary and to rely on the giving of the churches that he had planted to support him in that work, that he didn't have to be a tent maker by day, but he chose to be a tent maker by day to give an example, which is what he says here, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So he was a hard worker in the marketplace so that people would imitate him, even though he didn't have to do that. Paul writes about this right also in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9, he, asks, he poses a question to the church there. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without giving some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law say, does the law not say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is, too, it is uh, too much. If we reap material things from you, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. This is the right that Paul is talking about. The right of those who serve, who are called by the church or sent by the church to serve in, as, as ministers and missionaries of the gospel, that if the Lord provides through the church, they have the right, I would say we, because I'm included in that group, have the right to earn our living through it. Now, let me make one caveat here. I believe pastors and missionaries should work just as hard, if not harder, than the people in the pews. I, I here, Listen, and I don't... I'm gonna be careful. I think pastors ought to work really hard because I think we have the most important job in all the world. I think missionaries ought to work really hard because I think they share in the most important job in all the world. And I think 
as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, he calls us doubled honored. We're double honored in that we're honored as elders of the church, but we're also honored as those who receive their payment from the church. And I cannot, I cannot thank you enough for the blessing. And I truly believe that the blessing it is to serve as a double honored pastor of this church. And I believe Paul, the, the New Testament clearly, even quoting the old, gives me the right to do that. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, I gave up that right. Now, by Paul giving up the right doesn't mean that every pastor and missionary should, should, give up, should give up the right. It's actually the orderly way to do it. He establishes it as this is the norm, but then he says, we operated outside of the norm to give you an example of what it means to work hard. Then we get to verse 10, which verse 10, by the way, is one, probably one of the more misused verses in the New Testament. Paul writes, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So he goes back to when he first established the church. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For many conservative politicians, that's their favorite verse in the Bible. They want to use this often to talk about the need for people to go to work and not live off the government's dime. And I'm not here to talk about that subject, even though I'll walk right up to it here in just a moment. Let's first look at the history of this command because it kind of stands out as unique. You'll notice the way that it's, it's written there in the, in the, in the scriptures. It, it seems as if Paul is telling them something that he had already told them, but also something that was kind of familiar to them. And it would have been, it would, would have been. There were similar sayings, and we can look back in, in ancient literature and find similar sayings, sometimes almost identical sayings, in Greek writings, in Jewish rabbinic teachings, and even in later Christian writings from the second and third century. It was pretty well embraced by both uh, Greco-Roman society, Jewish society, and Christian society that people should work for a living. This would not have been an offensive idea in any of those, amongst any of those groups. So why does this matter? It matters because it was a generally accepted practice and principle in that culture and in most cultures. However, the issue of patronship had become a problem in Thessalonica, even here within the church. So while embraced by some as their way of life, it was considered by Paul and should have been considered by the church as disorderly conduct. So Paul speaks into the church to stop this practice, notice this, among the brotherhood. So if we want to use this passage of scripture in context, we must apply it within the church because it was within the church that it was to the church that Paul wrote the verse. So let's just think about work in the context of the church. The Lord first, as we just take a big picture view of the scripture, the Lord establishes work, labor, as the primary means of providing for oneself and family. Work goes all the way back to the garden and pre-fall garden. Work existed in the garden that the man and woman were expected to work in the garden. So work is an expectation given by God of people. The Lord establishes this, and so therefore Christians should value work. And so as we take that value that is supposed to be in all believers for what God has said and what Paul is saying here, we must recognize that a willingness to work should be a litmus test for those inside the church seeking help from the church. I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's writing two brothers and sisters 
And he says, if you are unwilling to work, don't come to the church for help. Now that may seem stark and difficult and kind of grumpy a little bit. But again, look at the parameters. He's writing to the brothers and sisters within the church. He's already said, y'all need to work on the idleness that's happening within your church. Now he's written a second time and he's like, you really need to work on this. And I'm going to apply some peer pressure and say, if you're not working on it, don't have anything to do with it. And now he directly addresses the people who are willing to just sit there and be idle. And he says, if you're not going to work, you're not going to eat because this church is no longer going to feed you. And again, in the context of the congregation. So yes, church family, let's just apply the scriptures. There are times that people in our church come to the, come to the congregation for help. We often don't let you know of these needs. You, you trust us as your elders to, and, and our deacons at times to deal with some of these needs, and we do so. And one of the things that I think we should test is, is this person really willing to work? Is it, is it, is it has something happened that's made them not able to do so? And if so, then, then let us support them and to support them generously and graciously because that's what the church is for. But if somebody just wants to sit back and do nothing, here's what the church ought to say. If a man does not work, he didn't eat. And Paul, again, speaking to willingness. Now, what about, because I can't not address it, what about those outside the church? Because the context of this passage is brothers, brothers and sisters, the congregation, we should be more gracious outside the church than inside. So meaning we should apply less of a test of willingness as we support the poor and needy. So outside the church, we should give to those who seem poor. We should give to those who seem needy. We should do so generously. We should do so with the gospel in our mouths so that people will know why we are doing what we are doing. This test, if a man should not work, he should not eat, is intended by the apostle to be applied inside the church. So let's that be the place where we hold one another accountable while being willing to generously give to those outside in the name of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't eventually apply it because it was, again, a generally accepted practice. And I, I think it's a right thing for us to say, listen, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, but I don't have to apply that test immediately outside the church, but we must apply it within. Number two, the disorderly characteristic of meddling. I spent too much time on number one. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You say, isn't Paul saying the same thing here? He is, but he's taking it a step further. Because th those who had disorderly conduct in their lives had become lazy and their laziness had driven them further into sin, into the sin of meddling. He calls them here busybodies. Paul paints another picture of this same thing in 1 Timothy 5, where he's writing, about, he's writing about widows, some of which had become widowed at an early age and were just spending their entire life dependent upon the church. And here's what he says, besides that, they learned to be idlers, right? So that's kind of the first step, going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So we get this image here in both of these letters that idleness ultimately leads to meddling, to busybodies, to being a gossip. Now you've likely heard the phrase before, idle hands are the devil's workshop. You may even think that that's in the Bible somewhere. 
And depending on your Bible translation, it is, but it's not really. The, the only Bible you'll find that in is a Bible that was produced in the early 1970s called the Living Bible or the Living Translation. Now, not the new Living Translation. That's a completely different thing. But the Living, the living Bible was not a translation of the original Hebrew and Greek. It was, a, it was a paraphrase. And they paraphrased Proverbs 16, 27 and said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Even though that's not actually what the text says, and we're going to look at the text here in just a minute. But that's an interesting phrase, and it's a phrase that has been around in one form or another for centuries. You can go all the way back to the 5th century, to the, to the 400s, and there was a theologian named Jerome who wrote, Engage in some occupation so that the devil may always find you busy. Chaucer, right? Chaucer takes that quote and puts it into his own writing, popularizes it, and it ultimately becomes idle hands or the devil's workshop, so much so that when they paraphrased the Bible in the 1970s, they stuck that into the Proverbs. What the proverb actually says is a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Now, a worthless man is obviously, among other things, an idle man. And what happens to a worthless, idle man? He ends up in his worthlessness plotting evil. And as he plots evil, notice the connection that the author of Proverbs makes between his idleness, his, worth, his worthlessness, his plotting evil. Ultimately, his speech becomes like a scorching fire. So basically the same thing that Paul says in both 2 Thessalonians and in his letter to Timothy, that when you become idle, you stay idle long enough, you end up becoming a gossip and a busybody. And Paul warns against this. Here's his instruction to the busybodies within the church. Stop it. <laughs> That's not actually what he says, but it's pretty much what he says, right? Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, he does the same thing that he did at the previous passage. He commands them and invokes the name of Jesus. Do their work quietly to earn their own living. Here's what he says to the busybodies within the church. Shut up and go to work. Please don't email me that I said that. Okay, parent, I, I, that's what he said, okay? Be quiet and go to work. That's what he tells them. That, that you need to get, get right with what's happening here. You need to get your life in order and you living off of someone else and ultimately being led further into sin by becoming a gossip is not doing the gospel and the people of God any favors. So Paul seeks to correct both idleness and meddling. But then he tells them, he doesn't just leave them with these negative commands. He gives them a pursuit a persistent pursuit of doing good. Verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Work hard. Stay quiet. Do good. I wonder, church, you ever grow tired of doing good? Because you notice what he says here, do not grow weary in doing good. Listen, hard work is tiring. That's why it's called hard work. And it can be, you can look around you and you can see other people not working hard. Maybe you do that every day. You go to work and you look around you and you see just a bunch of lazy people getting paid the same thing you're getting paid. And you're like, maybe I ought to just go be lazy. Don't, don't fall into that temptation. 
Don't fall into that trap. Do not grow weary in doing good. This is the instruction of Paul. And you say, well, wait, it's hard day after day, week after week, year after year to continue to do good when nobody else is doing good around us. Well, this is where we apply the gospel to the situation and recognize that ultimately, church, it is not us who is doing good, but it is God who is doing good through us. And he never grows weary of doing good. This is what the prophet Isaiah promises in Isaiah 4. He says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he does not faint or grow weary. So you may be tired of being around a bunch of lazy people, and you may be tempted then to just go be lazy with them. And God says, no, me working through you gives you the ability to pursue good every single day. Because while your bones and flesh may grow weary, the one who indwells you never, ever does. Then he says, he warns them. I'm moving quickly here. If anyone does not obey what is said in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. He reminds them of the importance of this command. But then he says, do not regard them as enemy." but warn him as a brother. He says, don't, don't totally disregard them. Don't totally write them off. Consider them a brother, but a brother who needs warning, a brother who is in his sin, and we should follow in this. Listen, don't look around here. Don't look around at your workplace and say, oh, that person's idle, or that person's lazy, or that person's a busybody. I'm a, listen, that, that person's your brother and sister. You do what you need to do to encourage them and to pull them back towards the Lord. So what? By the Lord's sanctifying power, we can, pull off, we can put off disorderly labor and pursue good. This is what the scriptures promise us, that God is the one who is at work within us. Philippians chapter 2 makes this promise, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hear me today, Christian. God is the one at work in you. But then notice what he says next in Philippians 2. Then do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul saw the generation that he lived in as, what, what, what does he call them here? Crooked and twisted. And you know what? Every generation outside, who is outside of Christ has been, crooked and gener- has been a crooked and twisted generation. It's not just today's young people who are crooked and twisted. Listen, your generation was crooked and twisted too. So was mine. So was your parents and your grandparents. Everyone outside of Christ. And we have Our world has always been ruled by the prince of the power of this air who deceives man. And regardless of how it has shown up recently, all the way back to Paul's day, crooked and twisted. And here's what he says, do everything amongst them without grumbling, disputing, so you may be blameless and innocent in the midst of them because it is God who is at work in you. So yeah, it may feel like nobody wants to go to work. It may feel like everybody who is at work is lazy. It may feel like that nobody's doing what they're supposed to do. Well, don't worry about nobody. You worry about you. Man, I just sounded like my mama right there. (laughs) We get old, don't we? You worry about you. 
Christian, you do good. You do good. Because God is the one that is working within you. And notice the connection between his work and you doing good. He is working in you to make you put off sin and you put on Christ. And so you partner with him in that. Ultimately, our work, every ounce of it should be done and service to the Lord. This is why Paul writes in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Children, teenagers, your commitment to school is unto the Lord. College students, your commitment to college is unto the Lord. Military members, your commitment to service of our nation is unto the Lord. Secular employees, your commitment to your job is unto the Lord. People who have been able to retire and spend their free time serving others and serving the church, your commitment is unto the Lord. See it as such. That changes everything about the way we approach our work in our world if we will see everything we do as being unto the Lord who is at work in us. Christian, he is at work in you. So quietly, diligently work hard in this world because by doing so, you demonstrate God to people without them even knowing it. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful that I'm preaching here to a church that I know is full of people who love you and love your word And because of that, work hard. But I would be remiss to think that that is everyone in this room. Would you correct our idleness? Would you you correct our meddling? Would you give us strength when we become tired of doing good? Because you have called us, God, to work hard in this world as we strive for the gospel in our community, and in our world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One quick thing, I know I'm, I'm out of time. We run the risk in a sermon like this of somebody going, I'm a hard worker, so God must be happy with me. Listen, there is no amount of labor that you can do inside the church or outside that's going to make God happy with you outside of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross applied to your life. So don't hear a sermon like this that calls people to not be lazy and to not be gossips and, and, and you say, oh yeah, I'm not that, so I must be good. No, you're not if you're outside of Jesus. But here's the good news. You can be inside of Jesus today if you will come to him in faith and repentance, turning towards him and saying, I cannot do this on my own, but Jesus, you can make me right with God. Why don't you come find me and let me talk to you more about how you can put your faith in Jesus.